everyone. I'm so happy to have a new friend joining us here for the Intake podcast. Diana Prado is the founder and executive director for Housing Equity and Advocacy Resource Team, HEART, which is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting people, pets, and their homes, especially in underserved communities. Prior to founding HEART, Diana was a supervising attorney at the Inner City Law Center, where she started the Pet Resource Center on Skid Row. How cool is that? In collaboration with... Who would have thought that that would be something that was needed, but it makes so much sense. Um, as a part of this program, Diana used, Diana used her litigation skills to stop landlords from abusing their rights of tenants. I just met her this past spring and absolutely fell in love with her. She was introduced to me by a friend and colleague, Amanda Arrington, who uh, leads the Pets for Life program for the Humane Society of the United States. And... Diana and I started talking and I knew that she was going to be a lifelong friend. Uh, her passion for this work is incredible. And as an attorney, she's truly making an impact and a difference um, in this space. And I'm just elated that she could be with us today. So welcome, Diana. Thank you um, for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So well, I... I just, there's so much that we can talk about, but I think what is really pertinent right now and what's affecting animal welfare organizations, we've got communities across the nation that are really seeing a huge hike in rental prices. And we're looking at 25% increases in rents. And how does that affect the animal welfare sector? Well, if people can't afford their rent, they're going to have to find a new place to live. And that's sometimes not easy to do when you have a pet. So how, what are you hearing? What are, you, what are your thoughts about this significant increase that we're experiencing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's having a huge impact on people with pets. I mean, just with, without the increase, it was already close to impossible to find housing that allowed pets that didn't have some type of pet policy of it has to be 25 pounds or under, it can only be one pet. And then with this increase, it's not as though wages are going up, right? So it's not like mm -hmm. as though employers are like, hey, you get a raise too, you get a 25% increase. And so we have people having to choose, like, am I going to pay rent? Am I not going to pay rent? And then when it comes to having to decide whether to pay rent or get, you know, even pet food, which seems simple, Right. And some folks would be like, oh, well, I totally would choose my pet over having a roof over your head. You're like, really? Like you're going to like, you know, it's a very um, it's a very like unprivileged thing to say when folks. And I think a lot of folks in animal welfare say like, oh, I would be out on the streets before I let my dog, you know, I surrendered my dog. You're like, eh, would you? I don't, I don't even know. I don't really. Because like, hey, come out here and skid row with us. Come on, sit out here on the streets with us. Let's let's sit down for a night. Oh, you don't want to be here for an hour? <laughs> let's think that over, right? I mean, legit, that's what, you know, was said. But no, that's not, you know, a single mother with three kids. A single mom with three kids is going to go out in the street with her three kids. 
No, no, not at all. She has to take care of her three kids. And so when it comes to having to determine whether or not you're going to keep your animal or not, and there's these skyrocketing rents at the same time, I mean, it's, um, it's a given that we're going to have issues with people remaining in their homes with their pets, and people are going to be scared. And then on top of that, landlords will then use and abuse the fact that um, there are skyrocketing rents to like intimidate tenants into, oh, well, we're going to increase your rent because we can. And sometimes in rent control jurisdictions, you can't. So, but yet tenants don't know that. So they get scared and landlords use that to then intimidate tenants being like, well, where are you going to go? Rents are so high and they start demanding things. Well, you need to get rid of your pet, even though they may not have to get rid of their pet. So it really just brings us down a path of um, people not knowing what their rights are, the animal welfare community not knowing what tenants' rights are. And so that's part of why I created HEART, uh, because to make that aware, to bridge the gap between pets and housing, to make people aware of the fact that, look, you have rights, you can push back, and then more particularly to let the animal welfare community know hey, these tenants have rights. You don't need to foster out their pets. We don't need to have their pets go into the shelter. We don't need to like create this elaborate plan of like transporting this dog from like South Carolina to, I don't even, I don't know, California, right? Like let's take, let's pause, let's take a breather and let's figure out how to keep this person and their pet together in their home. Cause that's a, that's a viable solution. Um, even with the skyrocketing rents. It blew my mind when you educated me about this. In order to notify a tenant that you um, should not have a pet, you have to do that notification in writing. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So the eviction is a legal process in every single state across the nation. So each state has their own specific process, but the point is, is that there is a legal process that's required. And in every single state, it's required that a landlord give written notice with details, like each state has what needs to be on that notice, but it has to be a written notice to a tenant. You need, and so particularly in animal welfare or with animals, you have three days, seven days to get rid of your dog or move out or your animal, your cat, whatever it may be, or move out. That needs to be in writing handed to the tenant with a notice. And let's say those three days expire, right? Okay, you need to get rid of your dog or you move out and the three days pass. That doesn't mean then that a sheriff or someone or police are gonna come out and evict that tenant. All that means is now the landlord has put the tenant on notice in writing, they have that in writing, and now they can go to court and file the paperwork, attach that notice, that written notice they gave that tenant with that paperwork, pay the filing fee, and start the court process. Then that's where like the clock starts ticking against the tenant, because the tenant has to then do something to respond to that court legal process. They have to get the documents from the landlord, but that's what starts it. And um, most of the time, um, 90% of the time, which is why we do prevention work at heart, is that we're in that verbal, either that verbal threatened, Um, or that written notice phase where we can respond to the landlord and say like, well, number one, this is a verbal threat. So um, normally when it's a verbal threat, I I don't educate landlords on what their rights are, right? That's not my job. My job isn't to be like, you need to write a written notice. This is what it looks like. <laughs> Said not my organization, right? Which I don't think that's our job. Our job isn't to educate landlords how to evict tenants. Um, they can figure that out on their own. 
So when it's a verbal threat, I tell the tenants, look, here are your rights. Here's what you can do to set yourself up to, this is what you would need to get. Here's um, how we can help set you up. You know, if you have a disability, here are your fair housing rights. Let's, you know, work together to get all the defenses and, you know, everything in place should they give you a written notice. But other than that, pay your rent. If you can pay your rent, sit tight and feel great, right? If they do get a written notice, then within that time period, we do respond to the landlord. Hey, you've given this notice to the, and really anyone can help with this, even animal welfare advocates. Hey, actually they've had their dog for seven years and you've accepted rent with them having their dog for seven years. You can't evict them now. That's like a defense across the nation, right? It's something called waiver. Like, hey, no take backs. You can't say you were allowed to do something and now you can't do it anymore. Um, or they may have some other defenses. If a person has a disability, they can ask for that animal to be their support animal and you can request what's called a reasonable accommodation. And so those are pre, like prevention, preventative measures that um, need to be known by everyone because it's the rights that tenants have with pets and that animal welfare advocates can really take part in um, helping keeping people and their pets together. Because you could just ask simple questions by having a conversation with the tenant. You don't even have to be like, do you have a disability? You could just be like, hey, you know, like how, how does your dog make you feel? How does your dog help with you? You know, like, oh, wow, well, you know, I used to be really depressed and I'm not anymore. Oh, interesting. Did you ever go to therapy? Did you see a healthcare practitioner? I actually did, I do see a therapist. And then in that simple conversation, we found that that tenant has a fair housing like uh, defense. And they're able to work that, right? Or, oh, I've lived there for 10 years and yeah, the landlord knows about my dog, but I don't know, they wanna get rid of them now. Okay, well, he, they can't do that. How do you know? Do you have like photos? Do you ever have any photos of the landlord there with your dog? I mean, I've had tenants that like legit, their landlord has like, they have photos of like the landlord, like with the dog, like, you know, when they were doing maintenance and then like, they're trying to kick them out later. You're like, I literally have a photo with you. Like what? <laughs> so it's those, um, I mean, I guess the point is there's a legal process and the landlords need to go through it, but everyone is scared, right? Everyone, a lot of the times I get tenants that are like, oh, you know, I just didn't want to form a problem. I just, I didn't want to say anything. And I was like, well, you're here now. So problems here. And I think it's wonderful that you founded Heart to help with something that has been a long-term problem that has impacted, you know, the ability for animals to stay with their families. And so Heart and your organization is located in Los Angeles, but what kind of work do you do nationally? If somebody's in Milwaukee and they are um, verbally threatened, is that something that your organization can help with? So at this moment, um, we what we're doing nationally is providing, is we're in the works of providing trainings that can help provide this information on a national level. And if an animal welfare group wants something more specific, then we can provide a training more specific for that. That's what like, we're kind of like launching out, rolling out as um, currently right now, it's a mighty small, but mighty staff of three, myself, my program director and my attorney. So it's, um, we can't provide legal services like prevention services to folks in Milwaukee, but we can provide animal welfare groups with like, okay, Here's what the law is in Milwaukee. Here's what their rights are. And this is the information that you can pass on to this, to this tenant, right? Should someone reach out to heart. And this, this speaks to how we as a profession in animal welfare are working toward 
again, helping people so that we can help the animals. Our goal really is to keep animals out of the shelter and to keep them with their families who already love them. And so the fact that your organization exists and that you can help at that level, it's almost every animal welfare organization in the country should be reaching out to heart saying, hey, help us help us help our community. And I think it's tremendous that you have this educational approach and that you can help at that level because I've, I've never heard of anybody doing this. So um, what was the impetus for you to go out on your own and found heart? Well, I kind of, I fell into animal welfare. I was dating a guy that was a huge pit bull advocate, the type of dog, not like the singer. Um, just saying awkward right and so I started volunteering at the animal shelter and in the midst of that um I would see at least like one out of three families that would show up with the dog when I would talk to them and I'd be like oh you know why are you bringing your dog they're like it's a housing related issue and I was like oh I'm I'm an eviction defense attorney do you need free legal services they'd be like what so that leads to (laughs) how then Heart LA was birthed because I kept seeing and volunteering at the animal shelter would have all of these folks coming. And I was like, wow, this is, this is an issue. Like there are legit, a huge amount of people that own pets that are leaving their homes or being evicted because of their pet. This is crazy. This is insane. Um, and so that's how I started the pet resource center over at inner city law center with downtown dog rescue was okay, well, how can I start at a small scale? How can we do this in a small scale? And uh, Inner City Law Center was located off of 7th and Central, like right in the middle of Skid Row. And um, and we really didn't serve, I'm like, like, they're gonna hear this now. They didn't really serve much of the Skid Row community as it was, right? Like we were in Skid Row, but we weren't really doing much for Skid Row. So I was like, hey, this is a great opportunity for you all. And everyone loves funding, right? And it sounds good. So that's how we birthed the downtown dog rescue Skid Row Pet Resource Center. And I just knew it could be bigger. I knew it could be bigger. I knew it could be done in a way that was going to have more of an impact. And then slowly but surely, we're now there, right? I don't know if completely there, but at least, at least you, at least the folks that are listening um, are here and understanding that we need to help the person to be able to help the pet. It comes like, or else it wouldn't be a pet. It'd be a stray animal, right? It'd be just like a stray animal. Um, but that's how I got, that's how I got to heart. That's how heart was birthed. One of the things that you also shared with me recently that was just mind blowing is I, I don't think the average person understands how prevalent eviction is. And when we were um, talking the other day, you told me that five families an hour are evicted in Los Angeles County. And I thought I misheard you. And I was like, I just need to clarify that. Did you say five families an hour or five evictions happen per hour in Los Angeles County? And I thought you meant like week or maybe even month. And you're like, no, per hour. And that is really hard to wrap your brain around, but can you speak to sort of the enormity of it? Because I don't think, I don't think folks understand how big the problem really is. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up in Orange County, California, very privileged, single family home. I never 
knew like what were evictions, right? And then when I went to LA and became, I kind of just fell into eviction defense work. Um, I then I realized I'm like, wait, people are get what people get kicked out of their homes? That's crazy. What's what's going on? And then I realized the enormity of numbers. In 2019, it was about 46,000 evictions a year in LA County. Now, LA County is big, but that's still 46,000 evictions a year. So when you do the math, that is five families every hour are getting evicted. And you would go to, you can go to court and it's packed, packed, just full of people. Um, 90% of tenants are unrepresented by an attorney. 90% of the landlords are represented by an attorney. Right. So this is I mean, it's so it's already an imbalance. There's already an imbalance of power of the landlord that owns the property that owns the land that's filing the lawsuit. Right. That's bringing this here. And then you just have the tenant attempting to defend themselves and then going to your point of BIPOC folks being more affected. Then you have, let's say, a monolingual Spanish speaker attempting to defend themselves in a legal system that's purely an English legal system that's not created to help anybody that's of color and poor. It's just not. Our legal system just isn't created that way, or even our housing rights system. So just kind of going back to the racism and the roots of it all, um, I think as animal welfare advocates and just in general, as, as humans, what we need to understand is, look, we our property rights are rooted in fundamental wrong principles. Like some like, you know, like I just bought a friend of mine a t-shirt that says um, illegal immigration started in 1492. And so, right, like really it was a taking of something that wasn't ours to take. And then we just founded property rights on there. Then from there we had redlining, right? Those folks that were folks of color couldn't own their property. Banks, like we did everything possible to just take power away from people of color, from folks that didn't have means and continued that. And so from that, it was, we made it a business. We made housing a business, maximizing profit over people. And then how easy then was it to make pets a business, right? Pets are still viewed as property. I think it's hard to, to go back and be like, oh my gosh, like, oh no, I'm not racist. Like, I don't think those things like, no, look, we all have biases. We all have inherent bias. It's okay. Like, but if we don't look at them, if we don't sit with them and are like, Eesh. Well, you know, like, oh, I'm a white woman in animal welfare asking a Latina, you know, like, think about that. Think about where our place is. Even myself. Oh, okay. I am a brown woman. When I'm going to approach someone that's black, like, I'm, that's not my life, right? That's not how I was raised. That's not like, what, what does that mean? They've had a completely different experience than I've had. Just because I am brown doesn't mean that that's the same experience as someone as a black person, right? But we need to come to the table and understand that the roots are inherently flawed. We're in, inherently flawed. And I think when we, and the reason that's important, I'm not gonna stress this so much, because then we have a level of compassion, right? Then we come back to humanity. Then it's not like, oh, well, why aren't they paying their rent? <laughs> Well, why didn't they check with their landlord first if they could have a dog? Because they fell in love with the dog because they went to the shelter. The dog looked at them, they looked at them and they were like, oh, I want to save you. And then they came back with the dog, right? We can just fix it from there. Like, stop. And, and so that's why I think it's like really important. Part of like my mission of not just saying, hey, here's what like tenants rights are. And here's, it's like, also, can we like realize here's the root, here's the problem. Let's, let's have it hit you. And look, it's rough. People don't like hearing it, right? It's not like I'm popular being like, hey, everyone, 
property rights is racist. Animal, you know, animal welfare is being, you know, it's also, you know, rooted in this like commodification of trying to make this a profit, um, which leads to like my anger with like pet fees and pet rent and people trying to be like, oh, landlords, you can make more money if you just charge pet fees. I'm like, because who's going to pay? We just said that rents were skyrocketing 25%. And now you want to add pet fees and pet rent to that? And like, is your dog going to work? Like, is your dog paying the pet rent? Because I like, what is he doing? Like, you know, my dog never was doing that. Like sleeping uh, literally all day. So I went on a tangent. I'm like, I went on a tangent as I do. Um, but but, that's but it, what I love about it is that your passion and dedication to this work just shines through. Absolutely. And I love that you approach it with a sense of humor, because if you don't have a little <laughs> bit of a sense of humor, this can be incredibly depressing and really sobering. In animal welfare, we've spent the last few years really holding the mirror up to ourselves and saying, wow, a lot of our programs, a lot of our policies, a lot of our protocols are based on those biases that have really shaped the culture of animal welfare. And so we're trying to unpack that, right? We're trying to step back and say, okay, why does this policy exist? Why, why do we do it this way? You know, what was, what was the reason this was ever even put in place? And Oftentimes, historically, we've not relied on accurate data. We've not relied on data. We've relied on anecdotal experiences to shape policy. And we've changed a lot in the last two decades where data has become um, center to making strategic decisions in animal welfare. Um, but we, we still have a long way to go. And you know, the work that the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement does is we are committed to the diversity, equity, inclusion work and keeping it at the forefront of this profession. I can, I can say that I've taken this very emotional journey because when I first started in animal welfare, I was adamant that if you were a homeless person, you had no business having a dog. You can't even take care of yourself and you want to have a, the responsibility of a dog. And we would have this in the, the, in the vernacular of animal welfare, responsible pet ownership translated to, if you're not a responsible pet owner, you shouldn't have a pet. And if you're homeless, you're not very responsible. You can't be responsible for a pet. And for years and years, I passionately believed this to be true. And it wasn't from a place of hatred. It wasn't from a place... It was me believing that caring for that animal, prioritizing the care of that animal was the most important. I have since completely shifted because of everything that I've learned. Now I'm an advocate for individuals who are homeless having a pet. I want them to have a pet. For that pet, that person's with them 24 hours a day. That pet is more often than not far better socialized than most American household pets who don't have that level of exposure to the environment and to other people and to other animals. And living in a community like San Diego, where I lived for six years, homelessness was a huge problem. And I would see so many animals with homeless people. And I got to tell you, most of the time, 
they looked really healthy and maybe a little borderline chubby. And it, you know, and it's, and it's just, it's just one of those that that's just one part of the fabric. Like that's just one piece of the animal welfare story is animals who are with people who are homeless. That is the only emotional support they have. That animal is their life. And more often than not, that animal eats before they do. They make sure that animal is loved and cared for and fed. And what I love about the work that animal welfare has been doing is now we have programs where um, food pantries exist, where a, a person can come and get food for their pet. So we're getting there. I mean, we're definitely yeah. getting there, Diana, but we, we've got a ways to go. But I think you're founding of heart and the work that you're doing is just that critical next step in the evolution. Because when you start taking on the system, which is what you're doing, that's, that's where the real change is happening. That's this, it's the systems, the, the systems that are rooted in those um, really biased and unfair histories. And so yeah. this is this is exciting work. If I'm if I'm working in animal welfare right now, what's what advice would you give someone in, who's working at an animal shelter who wants to advocate for tenant rights in their community? What's the what is the one thing that animal shelters should try to do right away? What's something yeah. that they can do to help? I think that one thing animal shelters can try to do, and I actually think that HSUS is, um, the Humane Society is helping with this, is being able to create a, like their data intake system to, to um, track housing landlord tenant issues and specific ones and be able to ask the question. One of the most important questions that I think is important is, did you get a written notice? <laughs> like, just that simple question. This person is here. Did they get a written notice from the landlord to just be able to track that easily? One, it's just a great opener because if the person says no, then be like, all right, well then go back with your dog. Go back with your dog. Here's a list of you know legal services agencies. And even if it's Heart LA, perhaps we can then help connect them to somebody in their state, right? Whatever it may be. Um, just that simple. And then having that data intake question available because then you can track that. And then we can really see the number of people affected that are bringing in their pets with shelters. And then we have real data, right? Because now we're just kind of like our makeshifting data. And I know that, you know, creates funding, like how are we going to change all our data systems? Well, we need, we need a change. We need a change. And I think that simple question too, even if you don't change the data system, to just ask and know that you can, you know, ask that person really makes a difference to what what's going to happen with that person and their pet. And then just like on a bigger scale, there is a movement, a nationwide movement called the right to counsel movement. And what that is, is that's ensuring that every person, uh, every person that's being evicted is going to get an attorney, kind of like the public defenders of the housing world. And it's, you know, going state by state and city by city. Like I said earlier, 90% of tenants go unrepresented. 90% of tenants go up unrepresented and 90% of landlords have representation 
And it's normally like an old white dude that's like, you know, just like, I'm here. And then legit, I'm like, that's legit. It's like kind of like the running joke with like our friends and I. You're like, oh, what did um, opposing counsel is what we call the opposing counsel. We're like, oh, what does OC look like? I'm like, I don't know, he's an old white guy. And all of us are like, ah, that's everyone. <laughs> um, so <laughs> legit. And we're like, that is not helpful. But legit is everyone that you've described. So, and um, and that is happening on a, um, I'm like, maybe like I can provide like resources of where you can go, like the National Coalition for the Right to Counsel is what it's called, advocating for that in your state. Because then if someone comes to your shelter and you're like, hey, did you get a written, did you get a written notice? And they're like, yes. If they don't have an attorney, then where do we go, right? We, uh, we need to be able to have, until we abolish evictions and we make sure everyone's staying housed, then everyone should deserve a right to an attorney if they're going to be rendered homeless. They just should. So that's something that in the animal welfare community can really help advocate on a tenant's rights point of view is ensuring that everyone has a right to an attorney and getting involved in those, you know, there's policies and bills that are going through in every state and every county every year when you vote on things or getting things on the ballot. Being part of that movement is, um, is what I think is really important. Well, this has been incredibly helpful. I'm really inspired by the work that you do, the, the knowledge and expertise that you have, and just congratulations on the impact that you have already made, because I can't imagine what the next 10 years are going to look like with you and your leadership you. in this space. So will you come back and talk with us again in the uh, future? Please, please, of course, any, any chance to talk to you. <laughs> and everyone will, else that's listening yes we will definitely um we'll get some of those resources that you mentioned and we'll get this information out to the animal welfare sector so that they can start asking that very important question and being able to track that data and so congratulations again and thank you so much for your incredible work diana you're thank very inspiring ah you. oh, thank you <laughs>